0: Hello and welcome to the fried egg podcast. My name is Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about the evolution of the old course at St. Andrews with the open championship at the old course for the 30th time this week. We thought it would be fun to dig into some of the deep history of this place, and it might surprise you to find out how different the course was in its early days and why it eventually took on the form that it has today. My guest is Bob Crosby, who has been on the podcast a couple of times before Bob is a golf historian. He's working on a book project about John Lowe, a major figure in the golf world of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And my and Bob's discussion touches on some of the very important contributions Lowe made to the design of the old course at a critical juncture in its history. But our discussion also just sort of ranges through time and gives a general picture of the way the old course has changed over time. All right, let's get to it. Here is me and Bob Crosby on the evolution of the old course. We have just kind of gotten through the first round of this year's Open Championship. In fact, it's it's still going on as we record this. Bob, did you catch any of the action this morning?
1: Uh, very briefly, um, uh, I do note that the course is playing awfully dry and awfully firm, which is absolutely wonderful.
0: Yeah. Delight to see the ball running along the ground like it like it does.
1: I, I think a lot of people took a lesson from Tiger Woods at Hoy Lake, which is hit two irons off tees.
0: <laughs> we're, we're seeing a good amount of like low trajectory shots today from the players who can pull those off, which is nice. Um, so we were going to dive a little bit into the past of St Andrews. You know, most of our discussion is going to revolve around the St Andrews of the eighteen hundreds and early nineteen hundreds. But I want to make clear up front that a lot of what we're going to discuss is significant for today's discussion and understanding of the course, as it's probably going to play out over this Open Championship. I think we'll hear a lot of similar debates about the course and and whether it's obsolete or not, what kinds of changes should be made to it or not. Um, So just to put that out there up front, this discussion of St. Andrews as it was in its you know, kind of not early days, but it's middle days is, I think, directly relevant to what's going on right now. So let's rewind a couple of hundred years and just talk about what St. Andrew's looked like before, say, 1850, like in the first half of the 1800s. I think people will be surprised to hear what the course was like before it was widened. So tell me about that.
1: The, the course until about 18, I want to say 1856 or something like that, uh, was, a, was a, uh, a, a single corridor hole out and back. Uh, you played uh, the same, same, same holes uh, uh, on the outward side and then back towards the clubhouse. The outward nine that we play now was added gradually over about 15 years starting about 1850 and work on it continued until about 1870 that outward that what we now play as the outward nine was called to time the field course because it was basically carved out of winds and gorse gorse on uh, on that side of the fairway it was it was very very wild for example uh, what's now the second green uh, was a thick batch of winds and gorse that was burned off about 1865 or 1870 to create that green, which gives you a sense of the kind of work they had to do to build. At the same time, they built the the current first hole, but also it gives you a sense of the kind of work they had to do to clear the way for the second, third, fourth, and sixth, fifth and sixth holes. Uh, They really uh, were uh, all new holes. Uh, the, uh, the current back nine is essentially the same or or essentially the same whole corridors and frankly, the same bunkering as the original pre 1850 course.
0: Mm -hmm. So, well, first of all, winds, you've, you've mentioned those a couple of times. What are those? What are winds?
1: Winds is, is thick, wispy grass that, uh, uh, if dense enough is literally impossible to hit out of and or impossible to find your ball in.
0: <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I've lost many balls and wins. Gorse is a very nasty animal, which is uh, lots of thorns. I don't recommend, even if you see your ball in a gorse bush, don't reach in to grab it. It'll rip <laughs> right. your, your, I've, This happened to me a couple of times. It'll rip your glove off and gash your hand.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Forget about playing it. You shouldn't even try to retrieve it.
1: You shouldn't even try to retrieve it. Uh, uh, it, it is. it was just basically unmaintained natural vegetation in the area that they had to, they, that they had to, uh, I think apparently from what I understand, they burned a lot of it off, but probably they, they took uh, uh, crude farm implements also and, and cut it back.
0: And I want to make sure that people picture this specifically Basically, the old course was half of today's corridor of the old course, Right, you know, that that, the back nine half of it with this impenetrable vegetation (laughs) essentially on either side where you'd lose a ball. And so the essence of the old course as a kind of wide playground that, you know, that's how we imagine it today was just completely the opposite in this era. That changed in the middle of the 1800s. And can you tell me a little bit about why it changed? Why did they do this?
1: Well, they, they did it because of the volume of play. At least that's the, what the reports say, is that they, they, the, the, the volume of play was so high and, and, and it was, golf was growing so quickly in the last half of the uh, 19th century that they needed some way to relieve the traffic. And so the the idea of building a, a, a different set of whole corridors to relieve that traffic I think was a natural solution. Uh, part of that, though, obviously, and this is unique to the old course, they, they didn't build new greens for those no hole, uh, the new holes, well, with a couple of exceptions, they did. Uh, they essentially expanded the old greens rightwards to accommodate the new holes. And so now the, the, uh, most of the greens that are august at August, excuse me, at the old course are massive. Absolutely massive, and they have but they have retained these wild contours that still come into play in terms of how you approach the greens
0: and and this was done essentially to make play go two directions you know to to enable people to play the course on the outward nine and the back nine at the same time instead of having to you know run into each other on the way back as uh, or on the way uh, out as they would in a previous era.
1: Yeah, that, that, that's right. And, and, and you tend to, you know, we all tend to laud the old course as the sort of mother of modern golf architecture. We can get to that in a minute. But it's important to remember <laughs> that before they expanded the course, it was a very narrow, tight, tough course with lots of what would have been carry bunkers. Um, you you had going out the, the wall and the rail line on the left side. On the right, you had basically on on un, un unattended uh, rough area um and it was it would have been a very very tough course
0: yeah and and pretty long uh for the area, which we we can talk about as well which is funny to think about now with with all of these pros driving half of the par 4s on the course but um in any case the old course became wide in the middle of the 19th century essentially and did this have something to do with the introduction of the gutta percha ball and the way that that popularized the game, and you know made more people want to go out and play, or do those timelines not quite match up?
1: I, yeah, I, I don't. That my take is slightly different. I, I don't I, in the stuff I've looked at, um, I don't see many references to the nature of the golf ball as having an effect on the, what they did. They w- they needed to build a separate outward set of holes that ran parallel to the original inward nine. They did that because of play on the golf course. I don't think, and and the the, the authorities I've read aren't clear on this, I don't think that outward nine was particularly wide initially. Mm. It got to be wide because of the volume of play and the fact that the gorse and the winds on the right side of those holes was, as Horace Hutchinson said, trampled down and that became a problem it was it was viewed as a uh, as as one commentator put it in 1891 a paradise for wild driving
0: <laughs> so so essentially they thought like the more that you trample down the winds and the gorse the less of an emphasis is put on accurate driving of the ball
1: exactly the the the, the uh, the whole defense of on the right side of the outward holes was that gorse and that and those winds. And once they appeared to have disappeared, uh, that defense was gone. By the way, the the, the other uh, the the other uh, the other factor in the trampling down of those winds and gorse was the construction of the new course, which ran parallel to a number of the outward holes. So you would have had players on two courses trampling down the winds and the gorse on the old course. And that became, by the late 1890s, or at least it was perceived to be, a very, very big problem.
0: So we're into the 1890s at this point. One thing that happens in the 1880s and 90s is that people really start to write about golf and golf courses at a higher rate than they did in the decades before, at least from what I've seen, right? There's, there's not a whole lot of golf literature that even really exists before the 1880s. And there's a little bit, you know, you can find references here and there, but 1880s, 1890s, suddenly there's entire magazines devoted to golf. And and perhaps this has to do with the rising popularity of the game in in Britain at the time. It's making its way down to England, uh, making its way down to England from Scotland. And so perhaps that has something to do with this kind of print explosion. But when that writing about golf really starts to take off, what is your understanding of what people thought, what these writers thought of the old course and why... They thought it was good, if they thought it was good. The,
1: the, the curious thing about the writing at the time, and by, by the time, I mean, let's say 1890, is that the old course was considered the best course in the world, not so much because of the reasons we think of today, which is this interesting arrangement of bunkers and other architectural features, but, but for the old Victorian reasons, that it, it, the, the, the length of the holes were such that they required full shots. And it was at the time one of the longer courses, but the reason people thought it ought to be a the, the, the primary rotor course for the amateur and the open at the time was for that reason, that, 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 that the holes required full, well-executed shots to reach greens in the regulation number.
0: Yeah. And you see this specifically in the writings of Horace Hutchinson, who was, would you say he was the best known golf writer of the late 1880s and early 1890s was he the preeminent golf writer of that time?
1: Yeah, yeah, Garrett, I guess so. I mean, he he did an awful lot of writing. You know, you had though a lot of other figures that that chimed in as well. Uh, w. Laidlaw Purvis mm-hmm. was a very cantankerous guy with strong, sharp elbows about views. He was a classic Victorian golfer who believed in very rational, predictable rules. He, he, he was the first person to formulate what he took to be a scientifically designed golf course, which is what we would now consider a classic Victorian golf course with cross bunkers at intervals here and there and that sort of thing.
0: And he was behind Ro- Royal St. George's. When we, when we talked, to, you and I talked about Royal St. George's in its early days, it was sort of representative of Purvis's principles.
1: The first iteration of Royal Saint George's was almost the definition of a Victorian golf course, uh, but but Hutchison was important too. I mean, he had won the Amateur twice. I think early in the eighteen nineties, he was a prolific writer. Was actually one of the first proponents of Victorian architecture. He later changed changed his mind, but he said, "Laidlaw purposes ideas embody the quote Procrustean axioms of golf architecture, which will live forever."
0: the Procrustean axioms.
1: Right, the Procrustean axioms. I, I know what
0: axiom means, but I, I'm not sure I know what Procrustean means.
1: I think it means basically timeless forever going back to the okay. Greek era, something Perfect.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is sort of how Hutchinson writes too. Uh, but, you know, something that's striking about Hutchinson's writing about golf courses in the early 1890s. I'm thinking of his book, famous golf links in particular where he has an extended description of the old course. And you realize two things as you go through this description of the old course. One is that he's describing the, what we would now call the reverse routing, (laughs) you know, you sort of get that a few holes in. It's like, Oh, okay. So that, you know, the out of bounds or the, the boundary of the course is on the left. As he's describing it here. So all the famous holes that you're thinking he's going to get to, he just doesn't get to. And then the other thing you realize is that what he likes about the course and what he doesn't like about the course are just sort of the opposite of what many people like about the course or don't like about the course today. What he liked about the course was its length. As you said, you know, nice full shots. There's, <laughs> you know, all the holes are the right length where you, you know, you have to have a, a full stroke with this or that club. And it really tests your ability to hit the full shots and make those carries, et cetera. What he doesn't like about the course is all the random, what he calls banks and braids, the undulations. So he was not a fan of the kind of chaos of the old course which is something that most people today sort of embrace about it and think of as part of its charm.
1: A, a, central, a central tenet of Victorian golf architecture and a tenet still debated today is the role of luck and chance in golf architecture. And the Victorians were absolutely adamant, adamant that luck and chance should be eliminated in a golf course to the extent possible. Uh, we still argue about that today. In fact, I might even argue that there's nothing new we ever argued about in golf that doesn't find an echo somewhere back in the 1880s, 1890s. But that's that's coming from a historian's perspective,
0: perhaps. Well, I think you're right, and and it's not surprising given the volume of writing about golf and discussion about golf that was produced during this era. They, they had seemingly time and room enough to talk about nearly everything. And so it's, it's tough to compete with their, their sheer output.
1: And let me just make a quick note. Uh, the volume of writing was prodigious, but it is absolutely fantastic writing. These guys were well-educated. They had classical, they, they studied Latin and Greek. Uh, their language, their sentences are eloquent. Um, and they, it really repays reading. Um, it it um, there is a there is a prejudice among people I- that are interested in golf that any debates that took place that far back in time can't possibly still be relevant. They are, profoundly so. Just pick up the stuff you haven't been you've been skipping over and not reading and read it because it's absolutely fascinating stuff
0: yeah agreed all right, so we were talking about their ideas about architecture okay- Hor- Horace Hutchinson had kind of representative ideas of the time about the old course. It was a good length, I'm not sure about the undulations, but you know you have to take a lot of full swing, so it's a good course uh, It's a very strange way to view the old course uh and and something that we uh, we don't quite recognize now, but within about fifteen years, the most popular way of thinking about the old course definitely shifted. And could you just tell me about that shift and why you think it happened?
1: Let Let me begin uh, by saying that about 10 or so years ago, I had a series of conversations with Peter Lewis, who I want to thank for pointing me in the direction of a lot of things and for the things he has written and things he's found.
0: I'd highly recommend if I can interrupt why 18 Holes, his book, Why 18 Holes? Yeah. Excellent. You know, you can, it's it's pretty easily accessible, I believe, and a uh, fantastic account of why we have 18 holes on golf courses now. Uh, there's some really interesting history there.
1: Which won the Herbert Warren Wind Award from the USGA for the best book of the year. So I, or I was a co-winner that year. Um, it's absolutely worth finding and buying. But Peter and I began a series of discussions, and the discussions were triggered Because he called me at some point out of the blue by what I think is one of the most interesting questions in the history of golf, which is, how did the old course get so good? Spoiler alert, I don't have a great answer for that. But if you think it got so good because a bunch of sheep dug out burrows to protect themselves from the wind and the rain... I've got a bridge for you in Brooklyn that you might be interested in buying.
0: (laughs) That's sort of the romantic idea, right? People are just like, oh, it's a completely natural, you know, just the bunkers are where, you know, they dug it out. And yeah, it's uh, there's there was a little more human intervention than that, wasn't there?
1: There was a lot of human intervention. No one knows that history better than Peter Lewis. And Peter doesn't know. So I don't pretend to know. Uh, How did the road hole get so good? I don't know. And nobody does. How did the Eden hole get so good? We don't know, but it is. They're remarkable holes. I mean, I have a theory that maybe some of it was put together by a Scottish gentlemen there on the scene who thought wagering was really important, so they wanted holes with potentially catastrophic outcomes that would settle bets, That's but that, that's pure speculation. Somebody designed those holes, and they are lost to history. Having said that, About some of the better holes, and all the, you know, a lot of those tend to be on the inward nine. The outward holes, the newer holes, were ones that we know a little bit more about. Peter was able to uncover, and he gets, I I want to give him full credit for this, the story of, I think it was 17 bunkers that were added to the outward holes in 1900. Um, I can go into as much detail about that as you want. He wrote a wonderful article about that in Through the Green a decade ago. But the idea at the time was that because of the, the, the because of the absence of gorse and winds on the right side of those holes, as we talked about earlier, they'd been trampled by multitudes of golfers uh, that they needed to do something to protect erratic play on that side of the golf course. So the decision was made, to build about sorry about 17 bunkers on that side of the course that is not well known and 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 uh, the there was very little commentary about it at the time but it is notable that a special committee was formed at the time to look into the possibility of building those bunkers uh, a 29 year old John Lowe was on that committee that special committee. His good friend, Freddie Tate, who would die about a year later, was on that committee. And they, along with the rest of the committee, helped set out those bunkers on the right side of the outward holes. That's really just two, the second hole through the sixth hole. Uh, Their plan also included the addition of three or four bunkers on eight and nine. The ninth hole was called the end hole, and they wanted bunkers in the end hole. What's interesting to me and this sort of follows through the other large bunker building epoch about five years later, was that what they were trying to do in 1900, and they were doing more of it again in 1905, was to make the, the, the whole, the, 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 those holes, quote, harder. But, and this is the interesting twist here, they wanted to make it harder because players were complaining that the best approach into the greens was from that old trampled-down gorse. In other words, a ball hit down the middle of the second fairway was not where ideally you wanted to be. You wanted to be over what in what used to be the gorse. So while they're talking about making the course harder, I want to argue that it was John Lowe's brilliance to figure out what was really going on here. And to use that's those sorts of concepts as the basis for a whole new way of thinking about golf architecture. That is to say, if you are trying to put bunkers in the places where you would ideally want to hit a drive to make the next shot easier, maybe that ought to be a principle around which you use that you use to place bunkers. Maybe that's exactly where they ought to be. Those bunkers were built on the old course. on the outward holes in 1900. Lowe publishes his first sort of sketch of what we would call today strategic golf architecture the next year in in a discussion in Golf Illustrated about the best holes in golf. He follows up with his book Concerning Golf, where he lays out what amounts to a theory of strategic golf architecture in more detail. But I like to think that the thought process that was going on about 1900 was absolutely seminal in Lowe developing those ideas. and he did it at the time pretty much alone. I mean there was you know it, he, he was uniquely brilliant because nobody else was thinking along those lines at the time. Now they caught on quickly. His friend Harry Cole, Tom Simpson, Mackenzie the whole clatch caught on pretty quickly. but Lowe was out there at the beginning thinking in in the context was the old course. We're not just make, you know, we don't want to make these shots merely harder. We want to make them more interesting. And the old course setup made that kind of thinking possible. It was just maybe purely by chance that the best approaches to the outward holes was from the right sides of 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 the hole corridors, which happened to be old course, and that leads, you know, it's a fairly thin, it's a fairly short step from that to thinking about strategic golf architecture and how, and, and theories of how bunkers ought to be placed.
0: This episode is brought to you by Gooder. Gooder makes twenty-five-dollar active sunglasses for anyone. It's been a bit cloudy at St. Andrews so far, but if I were there, I would definitely be wearing my gutter sunglasses. I have multiple pairs, and one thing I really like about them is that they're a large size to fit my relatively large head. They also have a golf-specific lens that I'm not exactly sure what it does, but things look very vivid and sharp. Gutters are comfortable, stylish, and lightweight, and they are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized in all styles. So, treat yourself to a pair or two. They are very affordable. And here's the deal for Friday egg listeners Gooder is going to give you 15% off your entire order. Go to gooder.com. That's G O O D R.com slash TFE and get 15% off when you use code TFE at checkout. All orders over $50 get free shipping in the US. Again, that's code TFE at G O O D R.com slash TFE. Look good. Golf Gooder. So I know that this is probably speculation here, but how do you think John Lowe came up with the idea that hazards should be placed where an ideal drive ought to end up? In other words, was he learning that from the old course as it existed before 1900? Did he see that there were bunkers on the old course that were kind of In those places where the ideal approach to the green was, you mentioned that there were winds and gorse along the right side of the outward nine, which is often the ideal line for those holes to attack approaches. So do you think he came up with this idea that hazards should guard those best angles instead of merely catching bad shots, which was the dominant idea of the time? Do you think he came up with that idea by studying the old course as it was? Or do you think he came up with it by philosophically thinking it through? I, who
1: knows? Number one. Yeah, right. (laughs) I tend tend to think that he was trying to solve and help a group work through a very practical problem. The solution to which led him to think more broadly that maybe we're working here with a different principle of golf architecture, at least the one we, we haven't talked about much before. Let me note that at the same time those discussions were going on, probably in the winter of 1900, Victorian golf architecture was at its peak. It was the dominant theory of how you design golf courses. There were proposals at the time to deal with the problem of the gorse or the absence of gorse on the the right side of the outward holes. There were proposals to build trench bunkers all along the right side of the course and all along the left side of the course. There were other proposals to build trench cross bunkers across the course. Oh, my God. Classic Victorian ideas that, interestingly, were all rejected at a time when those ideas were common currency in golf architecture.
0: That's what's so fascinating to me about this, is that those Victorian ideas. And when you say Victorian, you're, you're referring to the historical era that's normally thought to last from about the 1830s through the end of the 1800s, Queen Victoria's reign, which was very long uh, in in, uh, in the UK. But in any case, that's the Victorian period. And when you talk about Victorian architecture, you're talking about kind of the popular modes of new course construction and old course renovation in the 1880s and 1890s which had a lot to do with penal ideas right that you would catch bad shots by putting bunkers in front of tees you know so that if you kind of thin the ball that it would catch the bunker and stay in the bunker you would put bunkers along the sides of holes so that if you sliced it or hooked it you would be in a bunker the idea was to penalize shots by putting bunkers where bad shots ended up and that was absolutely the dominant idea In, you know, in 1900, when these changes were being made to the old course. So you would assume that those would be the changes that would be made to the old course. But somebody, maybe John Lowe, your man, stood in the way and said, no, that's not what this course is about.
1: The the, the paradox of the changes in 1900 to the old course, and the paradox continues in 1905, is that in an attempt ostensibly to make the holes harder, they were also making them more strategic. And. I think John Lowe saw that before anybody else did. And that I think it led to the further elaborate. It took him a couple more years, but I think he sorted it out finally and came to a fairly concise, clear articulation of the principles of strategic golf architecture that I think flowed out of all of those, flowed out of trying to solve that very practical problem.
0: So could you briefly explain, just in basic terms, why placing bunkers in the way that Lowe promoted and in the way that it was done during these old course renovations in the early 1900s, where you put the bunkers where you really want to place your ball in order to attack the green, instead of putting the bunkers where bad shots end up, you're putting the bunkers where good shots might end up. Why is that more strategic?
1: It, it's it's more strategic because the hazards on a golf course, on a strategic golf course, that is, are problems that you engage voluntarily. You elect to play close to the bunker to obtain the benefit of a easier shot into the green from near that bunker. Uh, they the the hazards and the problems that they give you are not forced on you uh, and. Penal architecture, what we today call penal architecture, and and, and to some extent the Victorian architecture of the time, forced hazards on you. You had to negotiate them whether you wanted to or not. In the case of Victorian bunkers, you typically had to carry them. And if you couldn't hit the ball well enough to carry them, you were a dead man. You were in the bunker and it would take two or three shots to get out of these cop bunkers with huge lips that were just disasters. And so... The idea of introducing the concept of elective difficulties essentially is, I think, at the heart of strategic golf architecture. You take on as many problems as you have an appetite to take on. You can avoid them too. If you have no appetite, then don't take them on. But you may find yourself with, you know, more difficulties on the next couple of shots if you do. Um, But those are choices uh, that strategic golf architecture creates. And I think why strategic golf courses are so wonderful to play.
0: All right. So another thing that's happening at this time is the introduction of the Haskell ball. Do you think that the introduction of this new and very much more powerful ball had an impact on how the old course at St. Andrews evolved in the early years of the 20th century. Now, my understanding is that these initial changes to the old course that you're talking about in 1900, those would have taken place like before the Haskell really took over. Right.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, I, I have trouble convincing people that the Haskell didn't play a huge role. It played maybe some role. But I number one, the Haskell didn't appear in England or Britain until November of uh, 1901. Okay. The changes made at the old course in in, in 1900, Lowe's initial articles on strategic golf architecture appear early in 1901, essentially a year later. The Haskell appeared after all of that. Clearly, by there was another round of changes in 1905 to build yet more bunkers, essentially in the same areas as they had started to do in 1900. For the same reasons, essentially, they didn't think there were enough bunkers there to to have an effect on play. So they built more bunkers there. There was some talk in 1905 about the RNA being concerned that the Haskell ball would overwhelm the course, and T's were moved back in some cases. But the theory of bunker placements at the old course, the new ones uh, in 1905, I just don't read much about people thinking that the Haskell had much bearing on that at all. It's just, it's it's a question of where you hit the ball. They, you know, tees were moved back on I think three or four holes that year, the beginning of tee extensions that go on still today, I guess. Um, But I don't, I don't think the Haskell had a lot to do with the, with the development of theories of strategic golf architecture.
0: Okay. Yeah. So you have uh, made arguments against the impact on the architecture of the old course of both the Gutta Percha and the Haskell ball. And those, those are pretty common narratives that those technological advances had a profound impact on golf architecture at St. Andrews. Now I'm sure that they had an impact on golf architecture elsewhere and the way that new courses were built, especially the Haskell, you know, courses had to be lengthened and renovated but maybe the impact is a little bit less uh, at the old course by the uh, yeah go ahead i was gonna say it, it had some
1: impact i mean the the you know the, there was some concern that the bunkers on the right side of number two for example could be overdriven um and so they added a couple of bunkers to handle that which are now well you know Completely obsolete. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's the greenside bunkers that are in play for drives. <laughs> well, the years. green,
1: the greenside bunkers—they <laughs> were added a couple of years ago, right? They were added under the Peter Dawson regime. I vehemently rejected, uh, objected to them at the time because that is the bailout side of the hole, and it—it it, I think those bunkers turn the second green into something more like a penal approach shot rather than a strategic approach shot. The second green, as I'm sure you know, has huge landforms, both front left and in the front and in the left side of that green. You do not want to approach that green from the left side. It's very hard to hold from there.
0: Makes it equally bad to go left and right, in other words. Yeah,
1: Yeah, well said, well said.
0: So, okay, let's go back to 1905 now. From what you were saying before, my understanding is that the changes for the 1905 Open Championship at St. Andrews were essentially extensions of the changes that were made in 1900, where bunkers were being added in the ideal positions in fairways in order to make the course more difficult for the best players in the world at the time. Is that an accurate characterization?
1: Yeah, I think it is. The the, the 16 more bunkers were added in 1905. Uh, Let me just note that with a couple, there were a couple of more bunkers built a couple of years after that, one by Bose, B-O-A-S-E, who was the, one of the chairman of the rules committee at the time. Um, And there was another bunker that uh, Herbert Fowler wanted built on the 15th hole. But essentially that was the end of the addition of new bunkers to the old course, 1905 that is, um, and the end of any major structural changes to the course. Now, I'm not counting moving tees back as a structural change to the course. We can argue about that if you want, but that was it. The map McKenzie does in 1924 of the old course shows all of those new bunkers, and there really have been none since, none built, new, new bunkers at least built since. Now, some of the shapes have changed, um, but the basic locations of those bunkers have remained essentially unchanged since 1924, well, that's when the map was done. I th- I, th- I would argue that they really essentially remained unchanged since 1905, um, and it was a, so. It was a major, major event.
0: Why do you think it was that the old course stayed so steady for many, many decades since at least 1924 and maybe 1905?
1: The greens, the greens, and green and, and the green surrounds are extreme enough to make it absolutely essential to play off the tee into the the correct side of the fairway to approach them. And if you can't do that, you simply can't score at the old course. There are very few other courses that have anything like the extremities, the extreme landforms in and around the greens that the old course has. That's where everything starts. And you, and you modify the rest of the course to enhance the power of those extreme contours on the golfer trying to play the course. And I think that, at least in my view, is the core reason why the old course is held up so well. Hmm. It, it, they, it has a unique set of greens that don't tolerate not only mishits, but shots, shots that aren't quite good enough, as Lowe put it.
0: Yeah. And that's part of the brilliance of the changes that were made to the old course in the early 1900s is that the bunkers that were added didn't have to do with penalizing the drive necessarily, right? It wasn't about the bunkers. Those bunkers were, in a way, about the greens because what they did is that they changed the player's relationship to the greens. And that's why. They were a smart move for the old course because that the, the old course is, is and always has been about the contours of the greens. And so when you're adding new bunkers, you should be thinking about how those bunkers relate to the angle at which players are approaching the greens. If you play away from them, the greens aren't going to be your friend. If you play near them, the greens are going to be much more friendly to you because of the way they're designed and all those fascinating contours.
1: The, the greens, if you care to look carefully, tell you how to play them. They tell you there is a way to play them that's better than other ways. Now, these guys playing August, uh, the, the old course today can overwhelm a lot of that just by how high they hit the ball and how far they hit the ball.
0: Is there anything else uh, significant, do you think, to say about how the old course evolved in the early 1900s that, that we didn't get to so far?
1: I just want to add that that after 1905, the bunkers were put in place in 1905, unlike the bunkers in 1900, they were incredibly controversial, incredibly controversial. J.H. Taylor, Garden Smith, then the editor of Golf Illustrated, Harold Hilton, Alex Smith, Varden, everybody hated them. They thought that they were brutally unfair. Golf Illustrated had a series of cartoons about the bunkers, and you know, they, they, they depicted them as the sort of Martian landscape out there in the, on, on the old course. And in all these cartoons, there's a bemused figure in the background looking on, smiling. That bemused figure's golf bag carries the initials JLL, <laughs> which is John Lang Lowe terribly controversial. Why the changes in 1900 were not controversial remains something of a mystery. Taylor writes an article condemning the changes to the course, which was an indirect attack at Lowe. Lowe responds in 1907 in Nesbit's directly to Taylor. And it is a further wonderful articulation of the basic theory of strategic golf architecture where I think, I, well, my view is that Lowe dismantles Taylor. Um, but it's a remarkable exchange. that the, the 05 changes were, uh, remained controversial for several years, for several, maybe decades.
0: Why do you think it is that they stayed the changes? You know, who who was in power that allowed St. Andrews and, the, and these new changes to stand up against the criticism?
1: Good question. Good question. Let me, I think, well, number one, Lowe remained a very, very powerful, powerful figure in the RNA until his death in 1929. Yeah. So you didn't mess with the old course as long as he was alive. (laughs) Now, number two is that there were, in fact, several proposals in the 30s, including one in the late 30s on the eve of World War II to... Combine some of the holes on the old course with some of the holes on I think it was the Eden course and maybe the new course to strengthen some of the old course holes at the turn eight nine ten some of those holes back in there. Harry Colt through had some interesting ideas about that. This is thirty eight or thirty nine. The war comes, nothing happens, and the idea is dropped. So it was to some extent a, a matter of just chance that changes weren't made. But after World War II, nobody had any money. Nobody really had any money to invest in course changes, maybe into the 60s or 70s. By that time, no one dared make significant changes to the course. And I think that's sort of the story. But people thought about it in the 30s. It was, it was on the table.
0: And history intervened. I mean, maybe and the changes intervened. would have been made if uh, right? everybody right. had to sort of abandon golf for, uh, for several years. Uh, and so maybe things would have been different.
1: Yeah, there, there there are many things that caused Lowe to spin in his grave since his death, but that's not one of them. He was smiling in his grave about
0: that. Right, exactly. All right, well, so fast forward to today. The old course is still essentially the course that Lowe defended in the early 1900s, right? The course as it stood in 1905. Now, I don't know exactly how long the course played in the 1905 Open, but in the 1911 Open, it was right around 6,500 yards. So I assume that that's that's more or less what it was, which was you know a good long course for the day. Now the course is playing somewhere in the range of 7,300 yards. There are tees on other courses. I think I agree with you that this has not made a structural change to the course, that that's sort of cosmetic in a lot of ways and maybe necessary given the lengths that guys are hitting the ball today. But You know, as you consider the way that the old course is being played now, how do you see the future of the old course playing out? Do you think it's going to stay essentially the same? I mean, some rough has been added, as we've discussed on the website, an article by Tony Dears is on there about rough that has been added on the 16th holes, the 17th hole. You know, so there's there's little things like that. But do you see big changes in the old course's future? And if not, do you think that the Open Championship should continue to go back there? Or if it would be better, maybe if it just let it be?
1: Let's see how the scoring is this year. I I, I do worry about that. If somebody wins at 30 under par, are people going to cool on the idea of coming back to the old course? Could, it is because, well, with some exceptions, it's out of land. I mean, just, there's just so much that they can do to extend the course. And by the way, if you do the math, and I'll keep this quick. If you want the course today to play the same length that it played, say, in 1920, based on a comparison of driver lengths then to driver lengths today, the course today needs to be about 8,400 yards. Right. There's not 8,400 yards in the town of St. Andrews to build that course. (laughs) So we're going to have to live what, 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 with what historically plays, even at 7,300 yards, a, a radically short championship course, particularly if it's dry and firm. So I worry about that. I really do. Um, uh, it, it, and maybe we just don't care about scores. I we say that, but we really do care about scores.
0: <laughs> it, it becomes a part of the narrative every time. You know, there are a lot of people beforehand who say, oh, who cares if they're 35 under, they're still all playing the same course. But, you know, if they get to 35 under, then that's the story of the week all of a sudden. And their RNA doesn't like that.
1: I, I have a debate on Golf Club Dallas every six months over whether par matters. I think it does matter, actually. Um, I think there's this mystical entity that's par that you try to live up to, and you can pretend you don't care. You care, <laughs> you <laughs> okay. care, and the the effect of par on people's thinking about golf courses, I think, it, it would be can be problematical at the old course. I hope that doesn't happen, but I'm wor- I worried it might.
0: Yeah. Well, so who do you think the old course serves now? Because it used to serve the best players in the world, right? This was considered a test for the very, very best players. It was a hard course. I mean, just looking up what the scores were at the 1905 Open and keeping in mind that the year before, you know, Jack White had set uh, what I believe was a scoring record at 296. You know, various people had gone under 70 on the last day of of that Open Championship at Royal St. George's. 1905, James Braid wins at 318. His low score was 77. He won with rounds of 81. No, the lower sc- low score of the week, I should say, was 77. James Braid won with rounds of 81, 78, 78, 81. All right, just just this morning, uh, a 64 was was fired by by Cameron Young. We are in a very different era of the old course. But the old course still serves the average golfer pretty well, right? The average golfer will still hit some longer irons into holes you know, depending on how how much club head speed they have, I suppose. And so have we just come to a point where the old course just shouldn't be expected to serve pros?
1: I think we have probably no choice about that, although I'm open to ideas. I think the principal constituency that the old course serves today is number one, regular golfers like me and maybe you. But number two, and maybe this is even more important, it serves architects. It is a model of good design, whoever the original architects happened to be. And again, we don't know who they were. It is a historic model that has been written about, thought about, discussed for 150 years or so. And for that reason alone, it is an important golf course. It is for that reason, frankly, that I was was shocked by the changes that uh, were put on the new bunkers on the second hole. They they re-sloped, I think, the 11th green back five or six years ago. It is such an important course as a marker for a certain kind of architecture that for that reason alone, it needs to be left alone. Now, if you want to put tees back an additional 60 yards and you've got the room to do it, have at it but leave the greens alone, leave the bunkering alone, leave, you know, the, 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 uh, the fences alone. Just, it, it, it is a, it is a monument to golf architecture that everyone has aspired to one way or another and should be, and should be preserved for that reason. And I, it seems to me that's the best possible reason. Whether you and I enjoy it is almost irrelevant. We will, but it's irrelevant. What matters is that it is a It is a placeholder for architecture and an important sort of touchstone that that we always go back to and rethink and reanalyze and look at again. And that's a very rare sort of thing.
0: All right, Bob, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for being here today. And uh, in case the message wasn't clear enough, leave the old course alone.
1: (laughs) A pleasure. Thanks, Gary.
0: This episode of the Fried Egg Podcast was edited by Meg Atkins. If you haven't visited the Fried Egg Pro Shop in a while, we have some special St. Andrews themed merchandise. We've got a long sleeve tee, a ball marker, a head cover, things of that nature. So check it out at proshop.thefriedegg.com. All right. Thanks for listening.